Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you here today at Hope and Anchor Church. Hope you've had a good week, and I, man, I hope you're enjoying this cooler weather. I mean, it's still got some humidity, still got some bite, but man, it's nice to be outside when it's... It's funny how glorious 85 feels when it's been 95. <laughs> it's like uh, you go out to run or whatever, and it's just like, hey, it's fall. But then, you know, coming out of winter, 85 would feel like a furnace, So, but it's all subjective. But anyway, it's been nice this week, and I hope you've been able to get outside and enjoy it. Fall will be upon us before we know it, and how great will that be, right? Hey, today we are continuing in our teaching series called Everyday People, and we are in our study session on Gideon, the life and times of Gideon, which we find in uh, Judges, starting in Judges chapter 6. And this is week number four, I believe. Yeah, and uh, today's message is called Statues. Uh, As you probably know by now, I started writing this teaching series uh, in the spring of last year, basically a a little over a year ago. And as you remember... uh, Ought 20 was a weird year. Uh, 2020 was strange. Uh, It was strange, but it was also uh, tumultuous. If you remember, 2020 was tumultuous for several reasons. What comes to mind for you when you think about why 2020 was tumultuous? There's some low-hanging fruit here, guys. COVID, yes, COVID. Good. What else, though? Virtual schooling. Virtual schooling, right. Uh, yes, everyone moving, I mean, yeah, figuring out education, how that works. Uh, but does anyone remember what all was happening uh, with, uh, with uh, uh, racism and protesting? 2020 was a tumultuous year, uh, and one of the most uncomfortable parts of last year was that spasm of violence, that, that, that anguish. And that racial tension that bubbled to the surface, uh, and it was sparked uh, by the the death of George Floyd and others by people who were serving as police officers. And this just touched something off that for months and months just caused so much tension and so much terribleness. Uh, So many people just angry. There was real outcry, and there was real pain for months on end uh, as these long-simmering tensions uh, over broken systems, over uh, inequities in the everyday life of of black people and of others uh, really came to the forefront. It was uh, something that, for the first time, uh, many saw for the first time because they'd never had to deal with it themselves. And all of a sudden, it's there, and it's like, whoa, what is this? People have lived this experience. This has been uh, reality for lots of people. You know, things happen in our life to help us see that our experience is not like your experience. My experience is not like your experience. Your experience is not like my experience. Uh, We've lived different stories, and they can be vastly different. So we just need to be careful about assuming that because I don't see something, it doesn't exist. Or because you do see something, uh, it does exist. We have to be careful. We have to be cautious in jumping to conclusions. But anyway, this brought to, to, to the, to the uh, social consciousness that the, the, the experience of the black community is a lot different than the experience of the white community in a lot of different ways. Uh, so in the midst of all the protesting, there seemed to be a search going on. There seemed to be a sort of search going on uh, for ways to express these big, deep feelings. Uh, 
There seemed to be a search going on for ways to express uh, anger and discontent and frustration and pain. And we all saw how that uh, was fleshed out in our communities, right? We saw, we saw riots. We saw clashes uh, in the streets. We saw public disruptions. We saw interstates being blocked by uh, human chains. I mean, just like stuff going on demanding attention. Demanding it. it became, and in the midst of this, another expression that we noticed, or I noticed, <laughs> for the sake of today's message. <laughs> but another thing that I noticed, and you probably noticed too during the midst of this, was it became popular uh, during the upheaval and the unrest to lay siege to statues. And this is still going on, but there was this laying siege to statues, uh, defacing them, and then pulling them down, uh, dragging them away, and then in some cases dumping them into rivers. I think there was one that was like rolled into a river. Uh, anyone remember that one? It was like pulled down, dragged, and then dropped in the river. Uh, typically, the statues that were targeted were of people who represented ugly events in history. Uh, they represented causes of which we now disapprove and are ashamed. They'd come, these statues had come to symbolize what many people felt was wrong in our country, what was wrong in our history. So, uh, they, they threw paint on the statues. They, they tied ropes around the necks of the statues. And the angry crowds cheered as these statues were wrenched to the ground. But here's the thing, in the end, does the crash and the splash of falling statues, does it really bring healing? Does pulling down a statue actually, at the end of the day, make a real difference? Does it, at the end of the day, change anything? Or is it just somehow, some way to salve our conscience, to, to salve a wound? You see, we vent our rage. There's something in us that leads us to vent our rage on symbols. We vent our rage on symbols, and, and we struggle sometimes to really vent that rage constructively on the source of the problem. And we go hacking at the leaves, and we, 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 the, the leaves of evil, and we struggle to actually strike at the root of it. So we go out and we pull down the statues. We destroy all the statues, and yet at the same time we wonder if it really made anything better. When I threw that statue in the river, did it actually set any wrong to right? Did it actually fix something for my, my fellow man when I just got so angry that I broke something? I don't know. Does anyone else sense this kind of frustration? I mean, you, on one hand, you understand why people do it, why we do it, but then we also feel like we understand why the next day we just don't feel like it helped. The problem still persists. Why is this? Well, I think there's two, at least two problems here. Uh, we've not found a way to time travel. Uh, we can't go back in time. Time travel is hard. You can write that in your notes, but it's true. Um, Google it. But uh, time travel is hard. We can't go back in time and undo the damage. We can't ungrow the fruit that we're reaping now from our history. We can't go back in time and th uh, theoretically uh, kill the theoretical young Hitler. You know, it's like everyone's like plays that like thought experiment. Like, well, if you could go back in time, what would you do? It's like, well, I'd go back and I'd, uh, I'd uh, kill Hitler when he was in art school. Well, okay. But you might have become the monster, you know, who knows? Anyway, uh, it's kind of a thought experiment that goes a little bit crazy. But, you know, we can't travel back in time. That's the first problem because uh, if we could go back and prevent the problem that we recognize now, sure, that'd be way better. The second problem is uh, 
there's always another statue to topple. We pull one down, throw it in the river, but there's another one that crops up in its place. Uh, it never feels like enough. It's like we're up against this many-headed hydra of evil. You cut off one head and another one sprouts in its place. Sometimes two sprout in its place. It's like you just never reach the end of it. There's always one more symbol of evil that has to be pulled down and it's never enough and it's always exhausting. It's like that scene in Forrest Gump. Warning, I'll probably talk like Forrest Gump in this, but you know that scene in Forrest Gump when he's walking with Jenny and uh, she starts throwing rocks at her childhood home uh, in which she endured so much pain and abuse. Remember that scene? Um, she's, uh, she's standing there and she has thrown everything at this house. Everything that she finds at the ugly exterior of this dilapidated, now abandoned house. She, first she throws her shoes because she remembers what happened in that house. She throws the pain, throws her shoes, and she runs out of shoes obviously because she only has two. So she starts picking up rocks and just starts launching rocks at the house and start hitting the siding on the house and it's falling off. She finally breaks out some of the windows and she can't find any more rocks. Finally she's so emotionally exhausted and emotionally spent she collapsed to the to the ground in tears. You remember that scene? It's pretty poignant, actually. And Forrest is standing there like, not sure he understands fully what's going on or what all has happened, but he knows that she's wrecked by it. So Forrest Gump, he, he comes close to Jenny, who's kneeling on the ground, just weeping. He comes close and he kneels beside her, and in the narration he says, sometimes I guess there just aren't enough rocks. See, that's, I knew that was coming, but, but you remember that he says, sometimes I just guess, sometimes I guess there just aren't enough rocks. There aren't enough rocks to throw, to assuage our, our rage, to make us express all those hurts, all those big, deep, painful feelings. There's never enough rocks. Taken further, there's never enough houses to hit with those rocks. And it's really frustrating. Do you get what I'm saying here? It's hard. We find ourselves in a tough spot. For a moment, venting our rage, it feels good. But the very next day, the anger has returned. Far too often, the very next day, the anger has come back, and we've noticed this creeping, low-grade rage has trickled back in. It's like it's the groundwater just kind of seeps back into us. It's like, man... What do I do? There just aren't enough statues to tear down. There just aren't enough rocks to throw uh, in our world to really make things right and to fix the pervasive brokenness that we experience. So what do we do? What do we do in a situation like that? Well, I found it's easy for us to go on crusades. It's easy for us to go on campaigns of tearing down statues and throwing rocks and things like that. Uh, more, more, more fundamentally, I find it's easy for us to rail against other people's offensiveness. It's easier for us to rail and, and go on campaigns against other people's offensiveness. Um, other people's offensive statues and symbols, their unfortunate histories. You see, as long as the problem is out there and it's with them, it's easy for me to, to feel myself to be in the right, to, uh, to vindicate myself from the evil, and to, to rise up and to start chopping, to start pulling and to start pushing and splashing. You get it? It's easier that way. But what do we do when the offensive statue is inside of us? 
when it's inside of me, when, it, when it's in my life? What if that symbol of evil is in me? It, I've allowed it to become planted inside my life. You see, it's much harder to swing the axe and to tie the rope around the objects of worship inside my own heart. That's harder. That hurts. Uh, we have these things that stand opposed to God, that are offensive to God, yet we're resistant, we're reluctant to tear those down. We're much quicker to go after other people's obvious symbols of evil or, or, or monuments to sin or idolatry in their life, but when it comes to ours, we're a little more guarded, like, whoa, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. That's costly, and that's painful. It is one thing for God to call us to tear down other people's idols and offensive statues, but it's another thing altogether to chop down the idols in our own life, to chop down the idols in our own house. Now, we're going to talk a little bit today about idolatry. Uh, what is idolatry? Uh, does anyone have any a, a functional, just basic definition of what is idolatry? Anyone want to help me out? Putting anything before God. Putting anything before God. Simple, succinct. I think that's true. Anyone add anything else? Well, Tim Keller will. I've got a quote from Tim Keller that goes along with what Sue just said. Uh, essentially, he says, uh, when we take good things and make them ultimate things, that is idolatry. It's part of a fuller quote where Tim Keller says, uh, sin isn't only doing bad things, it's more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing, more than on God. Get this, whatever we build our life on will drive us and enslave us. Sin is primarily idolatry. Basically taking the created things, even good things, and putting them before God, saying this created thing is the ultimate thing and I will worship that. What is that? I mean, uh, um, money, sex, power. You know, it's kind of what we normally think about when we talk about the idols that we oftentimes uh, hold on to in our life. Money, sex, and power. But we can talk about more and we will. But those are good to think about. These are the things that oftentimes in the heart of man are set up as idols that are offensive and opposed to God. So today we find ourselves in Judges chapter 6 again and we find Gideon um, and we find him as, we find that he is a man in hiding. He's a man in hiding who, whom God has chosen to be the mighty hero of Israel. Uh, Gideon is to be God's chosen instrument to free Israel from her Midianite oppression. Everything about Gideon and his behavior is marked. It's marked by what? Fear and doubt. Fear and doubt. And it's funny, the angel says, hey, mighty hero. And that's, there's an irony in that statement because everything about Gideon in that moment is not mighty and it's not heroic. It's fearful and it's doubting. You're the mighty hero. Uh, Gideon is found, first, threshing wheat in the bottom of a wine press. And I won't kick this dead horse. We've talked about that every week. But he's doing a, 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 an activity, threshing wheat, in the most unlikely of places. A place absolutely not designed for it, in the bottom of a wine press. He is doing this. Why? Because he's afraid. He's, 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 he's operating. He's living in fear of being discovered, accosted, and robbed by the marauding Midianites, right? You can read about this in Judges um, 6, verses 1 through 12. Uh, but then uh, he is hailed by the angel as a mighty hero, and he has promised something. He has promised that the Lord is with you. But Gideon cannot get around his defeated thinking. 
He can't hear what the very angel of the Lord, Lord, the Lord himself is saying to him. He cannot receive it because he can't get around his faulty thinking. His uh, faulty beliefs, his defeated thinking. So he is quick in that moment to air his complaints and give all the reasons why he cannot be a hero. Basically, by extension, you're wrong. Mighty angel of God, you are wrong. You don't get me. I'm not a mighty hero. I'm weak. I'm afraid. I have all these reasons why I cannot be what you said I am. I cannot be a mighty hero. He says, if God was really with us, so he says, hey, mighty hero, God is with you. He's like, oh, stop right there. If God was really with us, why has all this terrible stuff happened? We equate the two. Bad stuff happens. God must be absent. Right? I mean, that's where my brain goes. Does yours, like, well, that sucked. God must be on vacation. God can't be with me if it's hurting. If it's bad, if he seems absent, he must not be a lot, uh, active in my life. If God is really with us, why has all this terrible stuff happened? If God brought Israel up out of Egypt, why has he then abandoned us now? Do you ever hear your voice in Gideon's voice? His, your complaint in Gideon's complaint? Yeah, if God's so good, why are things so bad? Man, that's in us. I mean, that's like a, a, a knee-jerk response in my life, my spiritual life. But Gideon doesn't stop there. He doesn't just push back on the angel. He says, hey, Lynn, look at me. Look at me. While I'm at it, not only do you have the wrong message, angel, Lord, you have the wrong guy. I'm not the guy. I'm a weak man from a weak family, part of a weak tribe. I mean, look at us. Surely I'm not the mighty hero you're looking for. It's like this Jedi mind trick. I, I, I like to imagine he tried, like, I'm not the mighty hero you're looking for. And the angel's like, I'll be moving on then, I guess. Now, I'm not him. Whatever you say, whatever you think, it's not true. I'm weak. There's no way I could be who you say that I am, but God persists. You think you're stubborn? Wait till you run up against God's stubbornness. God persisted. He restates his calling to Gideon, as you can read in uh, six, chapter 6, verses 12, 14, and 16. Then the angel of the Lord demonstrates his power, and he proves his identity first through the burning of the sacrifice. Basically, uh, Gideon gets his sacrifice together, and the angel touches the end of his staff to it, and it leaps into flames and is consumed. And then later on, like we talked about last week, there was the proving of himself through the... Uh, uh, <coughs> The fleece, laying out the fleece. However, here's what I want to kind of focus on today. Between the burning of the sacrifice and the confirming with the fleece, God sends Gideon on an important mission. And this is in chapter 6, verses 25 through 32. Know this, in order for Gideon to, for God to use Gideon, in order for God to use Gideon in Israel's deliverance, there, must, there had to first be some purification. There had to be cleansing. There had to be some getting rid of idols and offensive statues. There had to be some. There were some symbols uh, in Israel that had become monuments to how things had gone so wrong. Monuments set up that it were opposed to God, and they would become the symbols of how far Israel had drifted from the worship of the one true God. Before Gideon can become a mighty hero and participate in God's work. And here's an important lesson. Before Gideon can become a mighty hero and, and participate in God's work, there are things that have to be dealt with. 
things that have to be cut down, and things that have to be burned. So let's look at Judges chapter 6, starting verse 25. That night the Lord said to Gideon, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one that is seven years old. Pull down your father's altar to Baal, and cut down the Asherah pole standing beside it. Then build an altar to the Lord your God here on this hilltop sanctuary, laying the stones carefully. Sacrifice the bull as a burnt offering on that altar, using, the fuel, using as fuel the wood of the Asherah pole you cut down. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord had commanded, but he did it at night because he was afraid of the other members of his father's household and the people of the town. Early the next morning, as the people of the town began to stir, someone discovered that the altar of Baal had been broken down and that the Asherah pole beside it had been cut down. In their place, a new altar had been built, and on it were the remains of the bull that had been sacrificed. The people said to each other, Who did this? And after asking around and making a careful search, they learned that it was Gideon, the son of Joash. Bring out your son, the men of the town demanded of Joash. He must die for destroying the altar of Baal and for cutting down the Asherah pole. But Joash shouted to the mob that confronted him, Why are you defending Baal? Will you argue his case? Whoever pleads his case will be put to death by morning. If, if Baal truly is a god, let him defend himself and destroy the one who broke down his altar. From then on, Gideon was called Jerob Baal, which means let Baal defend himself because he broke down Baal's altar. So, um, following the sacrifice that Gideon had made to the Lord, God gives him his first mission. Uh, and it, it, this is the first step toward the deliverance of Israel, that which they've been crying out for. Job one, get rid of the idols. Your first job, before I can use you any further, get rid of the idols. Your land is polluted and it must be purified. This cannot be here. I will not tolerate this. Get rid of the idols. Gideon is sent to take his father's seven-year-old bull, which has been raised specifically as an offering to Baal, and use that bull to pull down the altar to Baal and pull down the Asherah pole. Then use the stones from that altar to Baal and build a new altar to the Lord your God and use the wood from the Asherah pole as firewood then sacrifice the bull the, the sacrifice and burn the bull as an offering because did you notice how old this bull is Seven years old. How long have they been under Midianite oppression? Seven years. For seven years, they've been languishing in their idolatry, their sin, and their disobedience. This bull, in a way, was a symbol of, of Israel's sin and disobedience. Take this bull, this seven-year-old bull, sacrifice it, burn it on the altar to me. Uh, it's important to notice all that's happening here, all the important symbolism. The worship of Baal was often depicted as Baal was often depicted as what? A bull, right? And Asherah was a fertility goddess, the queen of heaven. She was represented by a tree or a phallic symbol planted in the ground, uh, and they worshipped her as a fertility god. This had become central in the life of Israel 
as, as shameful and, and offensive as it was. It had become central. No longer was this idolatry on the fringes. It had come out into the open. It had largely replaced the worship of the one true God, that God that brought Israel out of Egypt. It had overtaken the high places. You'll read in the Bible in the Old Testament that oftentimes Baal and Asherah, uh, they went up to the high places. I, I look to the heights. Does, there, does my help come from there? They went to these high places to build these shrines to Baal and Asherah. This idolatry had overtaken Israel. Where they looked to for help had been replaced, by God, replaced with idols. Instead of God, they were looking to Baal and to Asherah in these high places. And worse yet, closer to home, Gideon's family was polluted. Gideon's family was complicit in this idol worship. How do we know this? Well, Gideon's own father named Joash, he was in charge of maintaining the, the Baal altar. He was in charge of it. He, he led the community in the worship of these foul pagan deities. As is so often the case, the idols that God calls you to tear down will be those that are closest to home. Tearing down of idols begins closest to home. Don't be surprised. God's not going to call you first to go and tear down other people's idols. He's going to tell you, deal with your own stuff first. Get these idols out of your own life, out of your own household first, right? If Gideon was to be used by God, he had to first be clean. He had to be set free from the idolatry that had polluted him, his family, and his community. So the story goes on. As we've seen, uh, Gideon is not the bravest person you've ever met, right? Um, he's willing to do it, right? Finally, he comes around like, okay, I'll do it. I'll do what you told me to do, God. I'll do what you commanded me. But he was still afraid, wasn't he? He was still afraid. How do we know that? Why, how do we know Gideon was afraid? Well, he gets ten... Uh, servants, but he waits till nighttime. Under the cover of darkness, uh, he's working and obeying, but he's going out so no one will see him, no one will find him doing what God told him to do. Despite what he's heard from God and, and seen God prove to him, Gideon is still uh, at a deep level motivated by the fear of man. He's still afraid, and, and that's what motivates him, so he sneaks around. Nonetheless, <laughs> Regardless of how he gets there, it, the deed is done. The deed is done, and in the morning, everybody can't help but notice why wasn't there an altar to Baal right there? Where did our Asherah pole go? <laughs> is that barbecue? Why is someone barbecuing this early in the morning? I mean, they notice right away something's up. Their altar to Baal is gone. Their Asherah pole is gone. Not only is it gone, it's been burned up and replaced. It's not just missing, it's replaced. They are livid. They are furious. Something of great importance and meaning has been taken from them. They are livid, they are furious. Someone has violated their idols and someone has desecrated their gods and somebody's going to pay. Somebody's going to pay. So they quickly discover that Gideon is responsible for this. So they march over to Joash's house, knock on the door, and they demand that Joash hand Gideon over. Why? So they can kill him. This is a capital offense around here. You tore down our idols. You've desecrated our gods. You must die. Joash, give us Gideon. We're going to kill him. But clearly... Something's going on inside of Joash. 
some sort of realization has come upon him, uh, and maybe it's been maybe it confirms then some of these long simmering doubts in him about Baal and Asherah. I mean, wouldn't Joash be thinking, why would Baal let that happen? I mean, if he's such a, a powerful god, why would he allow Gideon to sneak up there with ten servants and tear it down without a word, without a peep? I mean, what's up here? If Baal is so upset, let Baal deal with Gideon. You guys shouldn't have to. If Baal's that great, Baal will deal with Gideon, not you. If he's so powerful, if he truly is God, he can defend himself. He can destroy Gideon, so let's just wait and see. At this, I guess, apparently, the people are like, good idea. They agree. They decide not to kill Gideon. They back down and they wait. They wait, maybe wringing their hands like, ooh, Baal is going to wreak punishment upon him like he's never seen before. Uh, but the problem is, it never happens. How frustrating would that be, right? So sometimes when things don't work out, uh, they still don't work out, resolution never comes, uh, we can't find satisfaction in the punishment or the pain for someone else, so we resort to what? Name-calling. They resort to name-calling. They give him a new name. Uh, at this, the people decide not to kill Gideon. Uh, they back down. They wait for punishment. Uh, it, but from that day on, they started calling Gideon Jerob Baal. The townsfolk started calling him Jerob Baal, or yeah, Jerob Baal, which means let Baal defend himself, uh, which was probably not a title of honor. It was probably not said like, oh, you're Jerob Baal. No, they said it as a sneer as a sneer with a note of jeering and mockery, uh, still tinged with anger and resentment, Jared Bale. Jared Bale. Let Bale defend himself. Everything that Gideon was about reminded them of this painful episode. You took from us. You took from us. So what do we do with all this? Um, I would say this. It's not easy to rise to the challenge of being used by God. Anyone who tells you it's just like high-stepping over life's troubles and is like, yeah, I carried on the wings of angels. It's not that way sometimes. It's hard. It will demand things of you. It is not easy to, ri to rise to the challenge of being used by God, but there is, not, there is no greater purpose in your life. Hear me say that. You being used by God, there is no greater purpose or calling in your life than that which God will place upon you. We're all seeking to live our best life now, Trust me, your best life is hidden in the calling of God upon your life. Okay, your best life, that best life that you could possibly uh, discover is found in living out God's purposes and calling in your life. But here's the deal. It begins with getting rid of the idols that you've allowed to take root it begins, the first thing, job number one, will be to get rid of the idols in your life, get rid of the idols in your family, make a clean break with your sin. What are those sins? What are those idols in your life? And this is time for you to do a ruthless self-inventory. Is it power? Is it control? Is it sex? Is it, is it self-absorption? Maybe it's pride. Or maybe it's something a little more insidious like acceptance or approval of others. If I had to list the idols that have controlled my life for many of my years, it would be an unhealthy need for acceptance and approval by others. That was more important to me than anything. That you would like me. That you would approve of me. That you would accept me as a, a good enough person. That was the, the pearl of great price to me. How about you? 
I mean, it's like power, I don't care. I mean, I'm like the least competitive guy you've ever met. I mean, I don't care, I'll let you win. I'll quit, I'll quit Settlers of Catan halfway through, I don't care. But in truth, I'd never start Settlers of Catan. <laughs> Let's talk about risk. Risk is a better example, anyway, or Stratego. Anyway, um, so yeah, power, money, uh, sex, I mean, I'd say I'm just an average Joe in those areas, but man, for me, the idols on the high places in my life have been an unhealthy need for acceptance and approval. I need you to like me, and that speaks louder than God speaks in my life so many times. But what is it for you? While you may not have an altar to tear down or a pole to chop down, we've all set up the worship of false gods in our lives. We've all allowed the high places of our lives to be occupied by the wrong things. Before we set out, before we start tearing down everyone else's offensive statues, we must get serious about pulling down the statues in our own life. We've got to get serious about pulling down the statues of sin and idolatry that have existed, that have uh, uh, been in our life for far too long. If you're going to be used by God, if you're going to uh, discover all the ways that He's called you to be a mighty hero in our time and in our world, to become this mighty hero that He's called you to be, it must begin with turning away from sin and turning to Jesus. The, the biblical word here is repent. Did you know the word repent actually doesn't mean feel terrible about your sin and grovel and crawl up to the altar? No, it means turn, to change direction. Change the way you're thinking and the way you're living. Stop living pointed toward yourself and self-gratification to repent, to turn and say, hey, I'm not going to be Lord of my life any longer. Jesus, you be Lord of my life. Your way will be my way. I'm no longer going to be Lord of my life. These idols don't have control of me anymore. You control me. You are Lord. That's what repentance means, and that's what's required. We have to turn away from our sin and turn to Jesus in order to be forgiven and in order to be healed. Just like Gideon, do not be surprised when Jesus comes to set you free, but does it by wrecking your idols. Have you been wrecked by Jesus? I mean, think about it. Jesus standing before the rich young ruler. He's like, rich young ruler says, Hey, Jesus, I think you're pretty, pretty, pretty great. Um, I want to follow you. I want to get in on this uh, good thing I think you've got going on. He's like, and Jesus is like, great, great. That's great to hear, buddy. Um, listen, all you have to do is uh, sell everything you own and give it to the poor and then come follow me. And the Bible says that uh, he was very distressed and very disappointed because he really was rich and he loved his stuff. Jesus was offering this rich young ruler freedom, but he was offering it to him through ruin. Let me ruin your life. Let me do something to you that will feel like I'm ruining your life, but through that you will be set free and you will find life abundant. But that was too big of an ask for the rich young ruler, wasn't it? And sometimes Jesus is going to come to us. He's going to ask us to do something that feels like ruin. And we just can't imagine that on the other side of that ruin and the pain and the sense of loss lies freedom and life. But Jesus wants to come and wreck our idols. He's calling you to wreck your idols, to pull them down as well. That's where it begins, so don't be surprised. But it, here's the promise. In doing so, Jesus will transform you. Jesus will transform your heart, He will restore your faith, and He will redirect your worship toward the one true God. 
Can we believe that? It's not for nothing. Everything God is doing in your life, everything God has done, is doing, and will do in your life, it's for this purpose. That He will transform your heart, He will uh, restore your faith, and He will redirect your worship toward the one true God. So let's pray together. Father, I pray that we would hear that word today. I pray that we would hear the truth of, uh, of, of, of what you're saying to us through this story of Gideon. God, so many times we try to, try to have this both-and approach that we can live however we want. We can uh, allow to, to, to languish or, or, or exist in our life things that are opposed to you, things that are offensive to you, yet we can still have a relationship with you. And it's just not that way. It's just not so. Anytime someone desires to come close to you, we see that there is a, a uh, wrecking of idols that has to take place. God, I pray that we would find the, the honesty, the humility, and the boldness to, to have you come to us, for us to express our desire to grow and to become more deeply involved in following you. Be bold enough to hear you say, well, first, you must uproot some idols. You must pull down some statues in your life. You must deal with the things that are polluting you, polluting your family. You must be cleansed. There must be a turning that takes place, a repenting that takes place. So God, I pray that we'd be bold enough and brave enough and uh, aware enough to realize that if we're going to follow you, we must be willing to do whatever it takes. Even if it feels like you're offering us ruin, that you're coming to wreck some very dear things in our lives. Do we trust you enough? God, we desire transformation. We desire restoration and healing. We desire to live our best life now, which is found in you. It's bound up in your purposes for us. So God, work that truth into our lives. Break our appetite for sin and for idolatry, for these lesser desires that so often distract and, and destroy our, um, our worship. God, be with us today, I ask, as we sit in your presence, as we share communion, God, I pray that this would symbolize the turning, once again, turning from ourselves, turning from our sin, turning to you and say, wash us, cleanse us. May we die with you so that we might be raised with you into new life, abundant and free. I pray for my friends that have been following Jesus. I pray that they would hear this as a clarion call to purity, to identifying the offensive ways, the, the, the idols, and to pull them down, to offer them to you, to burn them as a sacrifice and let you replace those, restore those things. And God, I pray for my friends who've never followed Jesus. I pray that they understand that the way that leads to life is found in following after Jesus. And it starts by turning, by confessing our need and surrendering. So I pray that you give us boldness and strength today in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, we're going to share communion today. It is the first Sunday of the month, and I look forward to this time together. Um, so what we're going to do is we're just going to take a few moments. There's just going to be some music playing. But this is a time for you to sit with the Lord and consider what we've read in the Word. Consider what Gideon had to face, the choice Gideon had to make, and how that affects us and what we ought to do with it, what we must do with it. There's idols in your life. There's, there's things that ought not be, statues erected to self that really need to be torn down. This is a good chance and a good opportunity to do it. The Holy Spirit is here. God is eager to forgive, to cleanse, and to restore. We have to believe that. 
That's the hope we have in the gospel. So take a few moments. Uh, it's appropriate before you share communion to spend some time in introspection. Say, search me and know me, God. If there's any wicked way in me, lead me in the way everlasting. Okay, so make the most of this time. And then um, I want to say this too. If you're following after Jesus, share communion with us. You don't have to belong to Hope and Anchor. You don't have to have ever been here before. If you trusted in Jesus, you have turned and are continuing to turn to follow Jesus. This is for you. You are remembering the great sacrifice and the great gift that Jesus gave to you through his life, his death, and his resurrection. So, after you've spent some time in introspection and preparation, I'll ask you to come down the center aisle and be served. Take your communion back to your seat, and once everyone has been served, we will partake together, okay? So take some time.